When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. My guest for this episode is Pastor Dorothy Sandall. Dorothy is an ELCA pastor who tried to retire but continues to serve as an interim pastor, helping congregations while they seek a new leader. Dorothy and I go back many years, and I'm so grateful she has agreed to be here at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting in St. Paul to share her personal story. I am so delighted to have my friend, uh, Pastor Dorothy. Oh! Pastor D here this morning, <laughs> and Pastor D is uh, uh, you know we have some history together. We've known each other for a while, and uh, she has an amazing story, and I wanted her to share it. So she's graciously here today to tell us a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So Dorothy, thanks for being here. Appreciate Thank you. it. You know, I, I've been thinking, you know, as you are bringing up this, oh, I'm going to be recorded, and I'm going, oh, what am I going to tell them? And I said, well. Think about it. What was it like? Oh, there was seemed to be a lot of yelling in our house, and there seemed to be a lot of drinking, and um, there were things that, oh, like the emergency vehicle would come because my father would try suicide. You know, there was just always craziness going on. I had a sanctuary. My mother would take us to her sisters on the farm. So that was my sanctuary. It was me and the seven boys, and I was very well taken care of. And I think that's a theme of my life. Uh, God was watching out for me during the hardest of times. You know, you think about the craziness of what it was like growing up, and, and you know, it's all crazy at home. I never felt like I fit anywhere. I never looked and fit in, and, and I always felt like the other. Then when you get to that ripe age of, you know, 12, 13, you um, have to do more crazy things because the other stuff hasn't worked, you know. <laughs> like, we borrowed a bike at the local park to learn how to ride a bike, you know. But but we brought the bike back. <laughs> I mean, you know, we didn't steal it. We brought it back, you know. And then I'd play baseball with the older boys until they hit me with a ball and knocked me over, and then they wouldn't let me play anymore. So, I, you know, but I learned how to dance ballet at the local community center. So I did have a lot of good stuff that went on. But at 13, you know, I started hanging out with a girl that wanted a little more in life, and, and so I went along with her, and pretty soon there we are in Halloween night, and I'm in a cave with a strange guy that is twice my size. And thank God I was being watched over because he just treated me like a kid's sister, and I got home that night safe. <laughs> and that's my first drinking so, experience. What do you mean you were in a cave? 
Well, we went out. I don't know. We got a ride there. I went well, with her. I just kind of went along, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. When, you, when you don't know where you fit, you just go yeah, along. So, okay, you know? so you were in a cave partying. I mean, so yeah, brought... I, I, there was nobody else in that cave except him and I. <laughs> That's all I remember. <laughs> but you had been drinking. Yeah, well, yeah. it's my first engagement and it was your first... with it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And doesn't everybody start drinking at 13? Of course they do. They do, yes. Yeah. Do you remember how it made you feel? No. I can't, except that um, I feel more fit in, you know, like the rest are doing it. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. You never fit anywhere. That's one of the reasons that you want to drink is that you fit in. I watched what alcohol could do to people, so I was going to watch it. And I watched it. And I watched it until it got the best of me. But that, you know, starting at 13 and then you just keep drinking with the neighborhood. We kept moving as when I was young, too. I, I remember living in five different places by the time I was 13. And then at, at 13, we moved to Selby and Dale. That, that, that's a good neighborhood to start out with at 13. They had a local gang on the corner, the 69ers. One of those wonderful gentlemen asked to go for a walk, and he took me to a, a garage, you know, and... There wasn't even any drinking involved, you know. And I said, oh, no, I think I want to go home now. So I'm a little kid in this woman's body that you add alcohol to, and I don't even know what's up or down. And all I remember is doing crazy things during high school and drinking every time I could get some. Um, we were fortunate in Selby and Dale that you could give anybody on the corner some extra money, and they'd bring you back some. You know, so we were very fortunate, easy to get a lot of drinking. The craziest thing I remember doing is going into the local grocery store and going into his cooler and stealing a six-pack of beer. And he was chasing me, trying to get it back again. <laughs> or getting beaten up by a local kid just because he was losing it over drinking or something. And nobody protecting you, you know. It just, you just never know what's going to happen, being beaten or, or stealing or, or it's all chaos. Your life is chaos. Always. I went to one high school and they said, no, you're in another district. Well, they started a rumor about me that I went down for two, that guy that didn't, I didn't do anything in the garage with. Yeah. <laughs> he started a rumor saying I went down for 250 and that I was pregnant. All the kids that I went to school with previous to 13 believed him because I changed schools. Of course. And so I had a reputation at the age of 13, and I had no idea. So I always felt like I was broken and outlier. And anyway, that's where I was through high school. You know, I worked at the local grocery store and made money, so I'd buy clothes because all the clothes I ever had was hand-me-downs from my aunt. I still... It's important for me today to have nice clothes because of that. You know, you can't grow up always having hand-me-downs. So all those things were in the mix of always hiding who you are and never feeling good about yourself. And uh, I had one teacher say to me, she said, well, why don't you raise your hand? You had a, a great paper. And, well, they, nobody wants to hear from me. You know, and so I always felt like that unworthy, not really feeling good about who I was. And um, so I drank every chance I got. 
And uh, then when I got through high school, I'd saved up a few hundred dollars. And um, so I drank all summer. You know, I'd get up about noon and get ready. About 4 o'clock, I'd go to—it happened to be a biker gang that had this little apartment, and I'd go over there. They'd take care of me. Honest, nobody ever violated me or did anything wrong. They take better care of me than my family sometimes, <laughs> you know. So I just always felt like I was protected, like God was watching over me. That whole summer, I drank every day. It was just crazy. And so then by the time I got to the end of the summer, whether my mother said something, she might have said something. But I said, maybe I should do something. And so I decided to go to college two days before college started. I took Asian literature as one of the few things left (laughs) open. Um, But it was a very good class. Uh, And then I started taking some pills with that, too, because I was working three classes. And some guy offered me some, so I thought that was a good idea. Then you do a little grab to, you know, so it's just a little bit of everything. So I, I was going through that year, and, and meanwhile, I'd been dating the kid across the alley, you know, with the two alcoholic parents. We had a lot of drinking things going on, and so he thought he'd better—he went into the service, and I'd tell him some things that were going on, and he thought he'd better marry me quick before um, too many things went on. So he came home, and he said, uh, let's get married, and I thought, well, okay, that's what you should do now, and get a little white house with white picket fence, because that's what those middle-class people had. And so we got married, and I went out to the East Coast. Now, all I remember about that is he flew back because he was in the Navy, and I took to along two students with me, and I'd never driven out of St. Paul before. So I was doing 170 in Wisconsin. And again, those policemen are very nice pointing out to you, maybe you shouldn't do that. And uh, again, I was taken care of again and again. Anyway, I got out there, and and I drank a lot with him out there. And then all of a sudden, I realized I was pregnant, and his boat was going to go off. And I thought, maybe I should quit drinking for a few months. So I did. (laughs) I went home to Mom, and he went out to sea, and he got out of the service, uh, I think, the following year. And then we were supposed to get the White House with the white picket fence. And it didn't go quite like that. You know, he had a few problems, and um, I did too. And we'd buy, like, two cases of beer, and it'd last us three days. And I held my own. I'll have you know, (laughs) I can drink just as good as he can. That lasted for about mm, three and a half years, maybe. And then, you know, all the yelling and the screaming and all that chaos that continues on when two people are drinking in a household, you know. So I divorced him. But then I thought about how I could have been wrong. You know, all the doubts eased in. You shouldn't have yelled back. You shouldn't have said anything. You shouldn't have done this. You know, you should have, shouldn't, shouldn't uh, yourself all over the place. But in truth, in the back of my mind, I didn't get the White House with the white picket fence. So in truth, I think I remarried him to get the VA bill to get my house. Truth. <laughs> and it didn't last long. I did remarry him, and six months later, I divorced him <laughs> after I got the house. <laughs> I had my house, and I had a decent job, and, and I drank a lot. My first fight, I was raised in Selby and Dale, and my first fight I ever had was with the woman two doors down, and she had the audacity to say that I wasn't a good mother. 
Yeah, I pulled her hair out. Yeah, big handful. <laughs> you know, that's the only fight I ever remember. And all that. See, I, I, my kind of drinking was not antagonistic. I'd get along with everybody pretty good, and they all took care of me. They, I think they saw the little girl in me more than anything. And so that was most of my drinking. I met an insurance guy. And dated him a little bit. And, and then he said he had a friend that was a millionaire. I said, introduce me to him. So he introduced me to him, and we started dating. And he was he was really a horse's ass. And if he said, be, I'll be there in five minutes to pick you up, you darn well better be ready. And he, if you weren't, he'd take off. And so um, we dated for several months, maybe maybe longer, can't quite remember. He took me to a New Year's Eve party. At the New Year's Eve party, I didn't know anybody. But for some reason, the very first time in my whole life, I said, I'm only going to have one. Very first time. That was January 1st, 1974. And I said, or December 31st is mm-hmm, New Year's mm-hmm. Eve, 1973. And so um, he came up and he, uh, oh, when we got to the party, did I tell you he was a horse's ass? Mm. Yes. He went to bed in another room and left me with all these strangers. Oh. You know, and what does a drunk do when they feel uncomfortable? They have more to drink. But I said no. But he put one there anyhow, and you know what happens <laughs> after that. I don't know what happened. Could you tell me? Because all I remember is I was dancing with his brother for a while, and then there's a lot of blackout. I don't remember anything. And then the next thing I remember is being dragged out of there, and he called me a drunken bitch. What? <laughs> Nobody calls me that. I was raised on Salvia Dale. You just don't let people talk, call you things like that. So he called me a drunken bitch, and that really, really hurt. And I thought, I've been watching it. I've been watching my drinking, remember? Been watching it and watching it. <laughs> Son of a bitch, it happened. <laughs> I um, became an alcoholic, and I dated an alcoholic in my drunken stupor one night. I thought I was defending somebody, I don't know. And he took me out, and I dated an alcoholic, and I said, maybe I should call him. So then I called him, and he answered so I hung up. I mean, what the hell? I really didn't want to talk to him. Was and, this the millionaire? No. We're no, talking, no. no. So he you, was the. So you were done with him. Yeah. After he called you, the yeah. names, you, no, you that, moved on. That's not good. Right. You know, so don't. you moved on, and you're dating yes. someone new. No. Yeah. This is before the millionaire. I dated this alcohol. Okay. You know what? Either you call AA in the newspaper, and I had a Sunday paper, and or you're going to call him back because you're not going to become what your father was. I didn't want to become him. I knew I was. And I haven't gotten emotional about that for a long time. <laughs> anyway, I did uh, call him back again because I didn't want to call a stranger. <laughs> and um, I this time, hello, and I go, never mind that. You know that problem you got? <laughs> I think I got it too. And I that's all I said to him. And he said, well, and— Talk about being incognito. My middle name's Anne. I told him my name is Anne. So he said, well, Anne, tell me about this. <laughs> he said, you know, I've got something that I have to put in the oven, but and I've only got about three hours, but I'll be there within an hour. And I think that was what my first picture of what AA is, that we're willing to drop anything in our life to help somebody. 
And that's what he did. He um, came, and he was there in an hour. And he just let me talk and let me share. And um, he listened, and he cared. And he was willing to do anything to take me to a meeting. And uh, the meeting, the first one that he regularly went to was Thursday evening at 54th and Nicolette in Minneapolis. I lived in St. Paul. He drives from Minneapolis, St. Paul, takes me to the meeting, takes me back home, and takes me back to, to go back home. But that's his vision of what AA was. And not only that, but he knew I needed um, treatment centers were just beginning back then, because this is January 1st, 1974. They were twin towns. I remember it was one that just opened up, and, you know, Hazleton was there. But um, though that was for those other people, I think. So he knew I needed to get the steps. So he'd take me to 2218 in Minneapolis that had step meetings. I'd go, and I'd listen to these people talk. And I don't know what I heard, but I felt okay. Then he couldn't take me to the next group of meetings, so then he'd send another guy, Mark. Yeah, Mark's motives were not always good at times when it comes to uh, relationships in AA. He took me to the meeting and brought me back. And again, always worried that I get the steps. I was really grateful, and I started um, going to the Thursday night, 54th and Nicollet. And it became my lifeblood. He said at the very first one I went to, now, I don't know if you can handle this. Could you sit there as the only woman at the table of 40 men? I said, I like men. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> and it turns out there was eight, ten women, but they all sat in the corner and listened. Al-Anon was not a word in their vocabulary at that time. They did learn about it and did do something about it several years later. But at that point in time, the women were just sitting back and listening. And I guess that had to be okay with their husbands, you know, as they were sitting at the table there. Uh, that group became my family because my family no longer talked to me. Families tend to push you away when you keep shitting on them and, and when you keep drinking and my mother alluded to me stealing some shoes or something. I don't know. It was, you know, shoes. I mean, come on. I probably borrowed them. You know. But there are so many things. You never felt close. There was always a wall. And I think that's what liquor does. That's what alcohol does. It builds this wall so that we can't talk to people or be close to them and know who they are. But when you come to AA, all the walls come down. And you have family. There are people with you and walking with you and, and caring about you and caring about your story and who you are and caring that you stay sober just today. Because this will pass, you know. We hear that and we, we don't know that it will. But I remember um, when I went to that meeting, though, people would go around the room and they'd say their name and that they're an alcoholic. Well, they came to my turn, and I'd go, mm-mm. That's what I said for three weeks. Mm-mm. That's my name. Mm-mm. And uh, I said to myself, I think, I see I expected an AA meeting to have drunks laying around the edge of the room <laughs> on the floor. Didn't everybody? I mean, that's what I expected. And, and here these men were sitting up straight around the table. I didn't know 
who they were or what they were, and it sounded okay, but I felt comfortable. But I needed to know about this A program, if that really worked. I had to know that it worked before I would admit I was an alcoholic, because once you cross that line, and I never even said that to my friend, remember that problem you got, I think I got it too. So I um, uh, had to challenge this program to see if it worked. The first step, yep, yep, I might have a problem. Okay, second step came to believe about a God. I'm not going to believe about you unless you show up and can do something. <laughs> so I'm challenging God within the first couple of weeks of being at a meeting because I'm not going to those meetings unless there's hope. I said, God, if you're really there, I was raised in the Lutheran church. I knew about God. I went there until I was 13. Oh, yeah, when I started drinking. And so then um, I knew about this God, and I said, God, if you're really there, Take my emotions that go up and down all over the place every day and make them smooth. I can't live like this anymore. And I was really sincere and really wanted God to help me with that. And I um, I just um, don't know what happened. But something felt different. And I felt more at peace. And I just said, I don't have to feel crazy. And it's just okay. And I, it kept going on, not just that moment, but that day and the next day. And I said, I think this God might, thing might work. And I think I was sober for a month, testing God, before I said, my name is Anna, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay, I haven't admitted my name's Dorothy yet. You know. <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> I think I might have explained it to him then. But he introduced me as Anne because I'd already lied to him. You know, you got to change your name up periodically. So I, I, that's why I'm called D now, because, um, because I, I wanted to change my name up. I never liked Dorothy. You know, it's an old name. wanted a new name. <laughs> And D sounded so much more modern, especially when you get over uh, uh, my age, um, that you want to be younger. <laughs> so anyway, there I was, finally accepting the fact that I'm alcoholic and I have to start working on this program. These people caring about me. Honest, they just they just kind of engulf you after the meeting and you feel like, whoa, this is what it's like to be loved? <laughs> I, and why did they love me? They loved me because I was a drunk, because I was an alcoholic. The worst character defect I can have, they loved me for. And I thought, this is God, you know. This is the real deal. And I have fallen in love with this program ever since. And every time I say that line, I cry <laughs> because um, I'm so profoundly grateful to have found the A program and the 12 steps and how they've changed my life. I was going to graduate in six months. You just do these 12 steps and you graduate in six months. Doesn't everybody think like that? And so um, I was going to 2218 and there was a pastor there and, and I was going to do my, um, it took me um, uh, 20 pages of writing 
And I did my inventory, and I took it to him, and he didn't want to see it and didn't give a damn about it. He said, <laughs> instead, he wanted to know what was really eating at my heart. And I would tell him, and uh, he would give me a book. And I had to pay for the book, too. <laughs> uh, so I went and got a book, and then I'd come back, and he says, I'm leaving the church now. Is there anything else you want to say? And it, it still, again, he didn't want to read those 20 pages. And um, so um, I just tell him what was heavy on my heart. And um, he really helped me start feeling like there was a decent human being inside that I don't have to hide any secrets. Because he, he, it's that stuff I'm willing to give up. He wanted the stuff I was unwilling. And so as I was doing that, I would uh, start getting healthier and healthier and, and go to meetings. And, and that first year, you know, you just start going out. I was told not to date for a year. And so I, I waited a year, and then I started dating. And the following January, after I had a Christmas with the only people I knew the AA people. It was the first Gopher State that uh, Christmas. So I was at the very first and one Gopher when State. it was at well, that Christmas party. Well, say what Gopher State is. I mean, Gopher State is a Minnesota gathering of alcoholics that um, that fir very first year was uh, December of 74. They had uh, gathered as a Christmas party, and there were some people with some food, and everybody brought food in. Right now, it's a gathering of thousands. But that year, it was maybe a gathering of a couple hundred. And so that was my family that Christmas. And then the next spring, they had um, a Founders Day uh, for 2218, but then they had this bigger gathering. And they did that, at, I think they did it at the Radisson that very first year. So there, there was like a thousand people. I mean, they had people gathering, and I felt like you know, I was at the first one, you know, and, and, and we had Marilyn Sellers that sang a day at a time. It was her song and she sang it right there on live on stage. It was just so powerful to know that I was part of something so much bigger and that we were all in it together. That no matter, and I started meeting people from all over the world. You know, I'd meet people from different places, and and pretty soon this gathering really got. That year, I went to the national gathering. It was just powerful. So anyway, that was just my first year. I'd go to all kinds of roundups and see all kinds of people all over, and they were so excited and happy about their sobriety. And I was even, with the grace of God, being able to quit my smoking habit of three packs a day. And I had a friend in AA, and he asked me if I was any different now that I quit smoking. I was, no, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm not any different? I'm different now. I know I'm different. And I almost beat him on the chest or something. So I just started dating, and, and you have... What is with it? All drunks attracted to you? Every time they come to the door, they're trying to bust it down when you're taking it, saying goodnight, you know. And I said, God, I've had it. If I never marry again, just fine with me. The next day, my friend at work, Polly, she, her dad was an AA. He was one of the top hatters in Minneapolis, some 
big elite AA group. I don't know what they they thought they were different anyhow. And um, but she was the daughter of an alcoholic, and she wanted to take care of me. But she knew she needed to get out, and she said, "Would you go with me?" Because she knows I went back in bars. I wasn't going to let them conquer me. I'm going to go in there and not be afraid because I know that I'm working my program. I went with her because she needed to go out, and she said, "By the way, I'm going to meet a friend of mine, and he might have a couple of ball players." with them, and we're just going to, if they find somebody, we'll flake off. And it turned out I met this guy named Harvey. Well, Harvey um, seemed to be good at Pac-Man. He'd hit those little suckers, and I couldn't, you know, I just, and then he was good at pool. Hmm, I like that, too, because I was kind of okay, but he was really good. And then Polly saw we were hitting it off, so after the bars closed at 1 and we played all the games there were, we went to her place and played Scrabble. That was pretty cool, too. He's pretty good at words. And then he took me home, and he explained to me on the way home why I felt cold in the middle of summer. I thought, God, this guy's smart. And they gave me a kiss goodnight, and they, well, that did it. And um, I think that was the day after I gave my life to God to never marry again, and I found <laughs> Harvey. Uh, Harvey and I have now been married 46 years. <laughs> there was nothing about us that got along. He came from a Norwegian family that didn't talk. I'm an alcoholic that's learning to talk. I said, no, you have to tell me. How do you feel? I see the sun. That's not a feeling. <laughs> and so I felt like I'd beat him up, and then I'd come back here. How does that feel? You know. And um, anyway, that's how our conversations went. And yet God kept pushing us that we had to get married. We were married within three months, and we couldn't even talk. I got a job. Uh, I was going to school at the time, and he supported me at that. And, and uh, we moved to northern Minnesota. And um, God put me in a... Um, a very isolated area with no AA to speak of, and I was only five years sober. And it's the first job with a lot of responsibility. And I was so scared. I would call my group. We didn't have Zoom back then. We didn't have anything. But I'd call my group, and they'd all get on the phone, and they'd all talk to me that Thursday night. And they still took care of me, even though I was far away. And we did start getting AA going up there. But boy, it's difficult in the rural. You really learn about anonymity. You really learn not to say anything and use your steps. And it was powerful that I learned how the A program works in that situation. I didn't talk about any people because a lot of them worked for me. I couldn't talk about situations because it affected other people. I could talk about what step I'm working on and why I'm working on it and what I'm going to do to make me better. It forced me to work on those steps because of the place I was located. That's why the steps really mean so much to me, that they work if we work them. And we have to work them and not sit there and divert our attention to blaming somebody else or, or putting it off on somebody else. It's got to do with us working our steps each and every day and working them to be honest 
and and remembering that God is graceful and forgiving us. And we make mistakes all the time. And the hardest thing is to do is to forgive ourselves. The last place we want to work on is that. And, and we talked about that at the meetings up there, that we have to be kind to ourselves and be gracious to ourselves. And, and if I'm a leader in that group, then I have to, to model and try and do that. Uh, sometimes we find that we can get other books that can help us become better people. And I remember being with a whole group at work, and we were kind of losing weight, but we were also building esteem. And I learned some things there, and I learned things from other books. And it's just like when I was doing my fourth step, we learn from a lot of places. And we have to keep our mind open that a lot of places can help us find that balance and find that way of living living in the world, and working those steps helps you do that. But all those other things can help you also. Um, I just can't believe how important this program has been for me to continue to grow and to continue to have, um, you know, up there, he got a job and, and we're both being flexible, and we had another child. So I, I had a child by my first husband, and so we have two children, and we were going to have adopt a third one because we didn't need to produce one, and couldn't seem to do that, so we produced another one. <laughs> and um, so we had our three children, and I was let go. And it's a place that God just didn't want me anymore, and I was afraid to leave because my husband and my children are doing good there. So I was afraid to take that giant step of moving on. Most of us are afraid of moving on. We're afraid of taking that next leap. I have to be pushed. <laughs> I, am, I am not a person to let go easy. <laughs> and so I hang on, and God usually has to kick me in the head, you know. And he had to kick my butt out of there, and I grieved for my daughter and my husband because I'm the one that caused them not to be happy. And um, doesn't that say a lot about me? Who in the hell do I think I am playing God, right? So I had to learn about not playing God. I am not God to them. I am not God that controls things. One of the things in my way of looking at things is is the big eye that is a symbol of what I talk about these days. You know those eyes you screw in the wall to hang things on? They got a little, well, I have an eye at home and it's about a foot tall. And it reminds me it's not about the big eye. It's about God. And change my focus from thinking I had to do things to God has to do things, and I'm only here to help him. And it's been a big journey. I mean, we talk about how we use those steps in and, and again and again and again, and they always become new because we have new things in our life that become illuminated, and we start seeing how we have been hanging on to things, hanging on to a fear, not letting go of things. So I went to a vocational place, and he said, what do you like? And I said, I like books. I like books. Books are so wonderful. They teach me. I can grow and learn. And he said, well, why don't you open a bookstore? I said, great. No, no, no. <laughs> I went to business school. There's one thing I know, that never go into your own business because it's no guarantees. And number two, never go into retail. There's no money. 
And so um, God, in his great wisdom, put me at a table one day with a person. She said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm uh, thinking of opening a bookstore. And, oh, great. I've got a friend that's thinking about that, too. Why don't I put you two together? Okay. You know, and I gave her my card. Within a month, I was buying bookshelves and books, going to the national uh, book selling, uh, my first one, and, and I was in Chicago or New York all by myself. Well, who knows? One bit cities like the other. Um, and um, I was there all by myself buying books, and I opened a bookstore. And again, God keeping me humble, telling me, you're not in charge. I am. <laughs> and as I had this bookstore, then the local Catholic church had a gift shop and they wanted to get rid of it. And they said, you have space on your wall. You should take this and sell it for us. The all kinds of stuff I had to learn about Catholics and all kinds of, I called my, my pastor friend up and I said, they're, they're talking about different kinds of Bibles. There seems to be a lot of them in different language is. And she had to tell me there's like, oh, there's about 10 different versions, 10 different versions. What are you talking about? You know, that isn't what I was raised in. And so I was all in a quandary about that. But, you know, people would come in the bookstore and they'd look for me and they just wanted to sit down at the table and talk to me. And God was teaching me to sit down and listen. And that became my mission at that bookstore. Just listen to people. And I'd always make them buy a book on the way out because I had to survive. But, you know, um, but I listened to people and, and heard them, and they felt it was a safe haven. I haven't been in that bookstore since 2000. I sold it in 2003. And a lady, as we were walking yesterday in 2020, said, oh, you're the bookstore lady. <laughs> so it was well thought of in the community. Um as a place where they felt good, I trained my people to look for something on everybody that is cool, that they can lift up and make the daymaker for everybody. I taught my people that we need to receive them as guests and somebody to be loved. And that's why it grew. And God kept me growing there. I mean, I always talk about there was one day when I couldn't make the payroll, and I said, this was your idea, <laughs> your idea, some money right now. And the money did show up. <laughs> Can't say how, but um, it showed up. And so um, one thing you don't do with bookstores, Amazon was coming out, and you don't, don't do with bookstores is, is sell them. You just usually sell your inventory for nothing and close them. But um, a gal came along, and she said, I'd like to buy your bookstore for real. Mm -hmm. I came out of the bookstore whole. I wouldn't say I made a big profit. <laughs> I'd pay myself seven dollars an hour, just like everybody else. <laughs> but um, I didn't. I didn't lose a lot of money on that. So I felt very grateful, and I didn't know what to do then. And uh, I knew I, I wanted to get a master's degree because when you're poor and lived in the ghetto, you always felt dumb. <laughs> you know, and you wanted to be as smart as those other people, and especially those people that uh, they called them middle class. That's <laughs> all I was looking for is little middle class. So I got a degree uh, before when I uh, opened, was in the nursing home business, and now I wanted to get a master's. 
the big stuff. And so I thought I'd be a master's in business and started taking classes there, and it didn't seem to fit. And while I was at the bookstore, I'd started some programs of like a women's, well, I call it a ministry, but it's a women's event where they all got together, just women's business, and started trading ideas. And we had a whole fair event going and went on for 10 years after I started it. And then we did the Meals in the Park. I started doing that in town, got the food shelf together with the churches, and we started taking care of the parks. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I maybe could be a social worker. So I went to look at social work at, at the local colleges, and somebody said, well, you should look at um, that seminary up on the hill there. They have a dual program. So I went and looked at that, and I thought, look at You could get a degree in social work, and then you could talk, get some words to talk to those churches because they need to step up. <laughs> I got to tell you, you know, after working at that whole thing with the churches, <laughs> they need to step up, and they're supposed to be caring for people, and they're not doing it. So, uh, okay, I thought I'd take that dual degree thing, and so I started taking classes, and oh, I started learning. I realized I'd, I've never really read through the whole Bible, and they started figuring out I hadn't either. <laughs> it didn't matter. I had an amplified Bible and taught me meanings of words. They thought I was brilliant then. And then I just kind of shut up for a whole semester, and and I, and I was surviving. And it turns out you have to be interviewed three times before you're supposed to start seminary. And I missed the first two already, so um, I thought I better get in on this. And they said, well, we're going to have to do the other two interviews. So I did one interview, and I went out, and they— there was nothing. And then they had another interview. And, and this time I said, oh, let me grab my purse. And they said, there's no need. And they're laughing their heads off that I think that I've been misplaced and put in this place and I shouldn't be here. So um, all of a sudden I'm being interviewed to, for what they call as a demon. That's those people that are pastors. And I didn't talk to them because they were a different breed. They kind of were in their own little bubble, their little heady things about who God was. And, you know, I'm kind of an open person about what God is. <laughs> and um, so I didn't like talking to them. And their words, they used words that I didn't quite get. And I had to learn some of those words because it turns out that the program for social work was closed to me because he didn't tell me I needed to get a letter in. And when I did put the letter in, you didn't fit into our cohort. Well, tell me what it is. I'll write it. Huh. But no, God wanted me here. And, and, and so I asked one of the professors, and I said, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Well, did you talk to God? I said, yeah, and he's not talking. So tell me, <laughs> what am I doing here? You know, and so... Um, uh, um, so she 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 kind of talked like this, and she said, "Well, well, well, just keep putting one foot in front of the other." Oh yeah, big idea, you know. So I kept putting things together, and it started realizing that God wanted me to become one of those demon, those pastors. Are you crazy? Are you? God does. N I mean, what are you thinking? You don't take this person that has done things that maybe we don't want to go in detail about and talk about, you know, things that maybe aren't acceptable. 
you know, I didn't even want to go to church. Do you know why I started going to church? That guy I married, Harvey, he's the one that said, um, it's Sunday, time to go to church. I said, I thought you'd get up on Sunday and say, hmm, and see how I feel. You know, you said, I don't think it's a feeling thing. I think it's something you just do. And I said, well, I guess I could try it. And so we started going to church every Sunday. So it's all his fault that I started going to church, that I started going to do this. I blame it on my husband to this very day. Well, there was another person that said she was hoping I'd read the Bible. So I blame it on her a little bit, too. So anyway, there I am in this misfit world of people that are so heady about what, I mean, liturgy. I mean, I don't even like that stuff. Why would I want to learn it? And then I have to sing it as a solo. Could you tone it down two levels? Do you hear this voice? It's lower, you know. So then I, 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 I did I did get through. Not only that, I you had to do an internship, and you have to go out to a church. The church I went out to, uh, the pastor, um, he he was broken too. Uh, that's what I can say about him. He was he practiced the bully system. He thought he had power over these people that came in that to learn instead of treating them with love that God gave him to do. He thought he'd really toughen him up and make him a good doctor. No, I'm not a doctor. I'm a minister. But he th- likened it the same thing, and so he bullied me until. Um, I had a Meniere's attack, um, and it's the first one I had in 20 years. I said, you will not do that to me again. And I learned how to stand up to bullies. And I would not let him do that to me again. Next time he asked me for my sermon, I said, um, I will give you my sermon when you give me two compliments. I will not take it from you any longer. You know, afterwards, um, he said, you know, I have control over your life where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in the rural because of what I do, say. So I, even though I complained about them, they let them have other interns after that, and one of them actually did commit suicide. So he was not a nice person. <laughs> but he's broken, just like we all are. And God takes these broken people and makes them pastors. <laughs> Go figure, you know? Here we are, a bunch of broken people. But he, he knew we needed to study the Word a little bit more than other people. And so the, here we are, as uh, I did, um, that senior year, uh, you're supposed to go back to church or back to the seminary and study some more. But I, I, of course, had to be different. I went to Hong Kong and studied for a whole year. At least I didn't have to memorize the catechism. There was nobody there that could understand it, you know. <laughs> but I got to preach to people of different countries, like five, ten different countries were there on Sunday morning. And that's who I preached to and kept the word simple and made sure we all understand it. And we were all filled with God's love to go out in the world and share the Word and share His love and the grace that we've been given. God took care of me all those times when I was in tough situations. God took care of me when I came into AA and and things were going wrong, and He took care of me. I was in situations that I couldn't handle. God was always there for me, even when I didn't think God was. And I am so grateful for this 12-step program 
my my senior year, I had to write a paper. And and by the time I got through four years of seminary, I couldn't remember if there was 12 commandments and 10 steps <laughs> or 10 steps and 12 commandments. So I figured my senior year, I had to write a paper on talking about how God is and the AA program are one and the same. That that AA program was based on all the things that God wanted us to, to know and to do. And I figured it was my call that if he wants me to do this, he wants me to go out there and share God's word through a simple steps, simple ways of understanding of how we got to clean up our own backyard. It's not for us to point at somebody else, but to sit there and say, I'm sorry, to sit there and show love to somebody you're not crazy about. You can love them, and you don't have to hang around with them. I always, my favorite joke was, my worst enemy, I'd wish they'd, they'd win the lottery and, and win a million dollars and move far, far away. <laughs> so, but I always wish good. I wish good for everyone. And everybody's broken, and it's the most important thing. I was broken, and he healed me. Healing me. I'm still broken. <laughs> and it's still in process. And God is continuing to walk with me and to carry me and to be my guide. And I keep trying to let go of the big ego, the big I, and to sit there and say, this is all God's deal. I'm here today because this is all God's deal. Amen. Amen. You were kind of a pioneer for women in NAA. Yeah. Uh, what was it like to be uh, to go through that I mean, as a woman? I mean, that was you were outnumbered. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that women can be taken advantage of. You know, I, I went to one meeting and this guy was very nice and he'd say things to me like, um, you know, my wife's incapacitated and I really need to have some sex. Would you mind? And, you know, uh, you know, it'd be things like that or, or somebody trying to corner you after a meeting or, um, Taking advantage of the the soft side of ourselves, uh, where I I need fifty dollars, uh, I owe this guy, and if I don't pay him, I'm going to get beaten. Well, I'm going to give him my fifty dollars. I didn't have but a hundred. For me, it was always uh, I had a tough mother, a really badass mother, and she made me confronted me with things that I didn't want to. When I was eight years old, I stole a candy bar from the drugstore. And he said, I don't ever want to see your face in here again. Within three hours, my mother said, I need some aspirin. Go to the drugstore and get some aspirin. I said, nope. <laughs> she said, oh, yes, you will. And I said, nope. <laughs> and she, and the squirrely me finally told her that I stole the candy bar, and he told me never to come in. And she said, fine, here's a note, here's the money, go. She taught me at a very young age to face my fears. And so when I had those fears, when the things came up that I was afraid that the program, there were so many good people in the program that, that the bad that um, may have affected me, I could ignore. One of the worst ones was uh, I, I 
didn't even date. That we were just friends in an AA meeting. We went to an orchestra hall for a con- rug concert, and and within a couple of weeks, he commits suicide. You know the responsibility I felt again as a woman. Men can detach somehow with some of those emotions, mm. but women just oh, it's all my fault. Remember, it's all about me. Mm. I was feeling so terrible, and they brought a guy in. Um, from another meeting that was very well-versed in suicide. And he said, you know, suicide's the epitome of self-centeredness. They're not thinking about you. They're not thinking about anything except themselves. Now, I know that's not totally true anymore today, that suicide is a lot about a lot of um, uh, endorphins and a lot of things that go on. But it did take a lot of weight off of me. I think it's hard as a woman, and you come into places that are dominated by men, and they expect you to back down. And they expect you to to take back what you said. You had mentioned in your story about uh, seeing, as a social worker, seeing the churches and feeling like they needed to step up. Hmm. Um, it's sort of the passion or the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith to, to try to get the churches to step up around the issue of addiction. Can you say anything about uh, what the church does with addiction and what it could be doing? Can I say? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to really doing anything in the area of addiction, they really do not acknowledge it. I spoke to a group and invited them to come to a conference. I, I talked to the St. Paul Synod for Ed one time, and I I said, how many of you have somebody in your family or friend that has addiction? And almost every hand went up with 450 people. With that many people affected, why wouldn't they want to do more? It's just like, oh, it's with us. We just need to accept it. And and and, and when I got up in front of my peers, that was kind of hard for me. I've been incognito a little bit. I don't sit there and put it right out there like Ed does. And I'm getting better, though. He's a good model. Um, and so I got out in front of him, and I said, with the help of God and the grace of this fellowship, I've been able to stay sober since January 1st, 1974. And even though I was given a great hand of applause, it wasn't about me. It was about with the fellowship and God's grace, and that they too can show that other people can get help. And nobody wants to do it. There is no energy. I mean, well, go start, see what you can do. We'll get behind you. You know, no. It's um, as much as they, we all know it's a problem around us. Um, it's more of an acceptance that it is, maybe like COVID 19, you know, it's there. Wear your mask, don't wear your mask, you know. The problem is that it's real, and it's going to kill somebody you know if you don't do something. And what are we doing? How are we helping one another? How are we sitting there lifting one another up and and, and addressing it? we got to keep working on this. Yep. Because it's still out there, and it's still taking people down. I just am so grateful for your story, and I'm so grateful that I got to sit here and listen to it. I feel so honored because I heard, I I saw God in your story so clearly and so beautifully. You know, God's pretty amazing. Yeah. And he seems to love the most broken. (laughs) So he loves you a lot. (laughs) Yeah, he loves me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. (laughs) 
My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization. Mm -hmm.